And so I think that's the next layer is where executive teams have actually made this decision. You know what? We are going to invest in enhancing the health of our people. And we're also going to, we're also going to make sure that our people feel somewhat accountable to look after their health. Uh, and, then, and then we begin to invest the resources and we begin to execute it like any other strategic priority versus a well-being week once a week where we tick the box or we've got a few bananas next to the till in the canteen and we've got nuts in meeting rooms and we say we care for our people. You know, health is important. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. We have another visit deep into the archives of the Connected Leadership Podcast today in Connected Leadership Gold. And we go back to the very beginning, to episode number one, where I was joined by two senior leaders from the corporate world who have both had their own struggles with mental health and who are now leading advocates uh, for mental wellness, mental well-being in the workplace. They've both got powerful stories to share uh, and great advice to give as well. And I think this remains an important uh, and after the pandemic, even more uh, relevant topic to share, hence revisiting it. So let's go back to the very, very earliest days of the Connected Leadership podcast, where I introduced the podcast and my guests. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast, a brand new series designed to explore just how professional relationships underpin executive success. I'm Andy Lapata, and over the weeks to come, I'll be talking to a host of people from around the world with stories to tell and insight to share. There will be business leaders, celebrities, sports stars, and more, all here to share their expertise, their experiences, and their ideas with me to help you. We start off today with an interview with two guys who have got stellar careers in the corporate world, but are also very, very prominent mental health campaigners in the UK. Both of them have had issues with their own mental health and they are passionate believers in helping other people to avoid the same pitfalls that they fell for. Uh, Jeff McDonald is a former global vice president of HR for Unilever who suffered a huge anxiety attack that really made him look back at the way he was living his life, while Perry Burton is head of people and culture at Grant Thornton and suffered from extreme depression. So I started off by asking Jeff what led to his panic attack. Uh, yeah, thank you so much for having me, Andy, and it's and it's great to be doing this with uh, Perry as well. So um, yeah, and it's wonderful what you're doing, uh, you know, and getting these messages out. But um, you know, I think that you know what led to my panic attack. I don't really know, to be quite honest. Um, I think it was uh, an accumulation of events that began to build up in my life. You know, at the time. I was beginning to localize here in the UK. I'd been an expat with Unilever for a good 15, 20 odd years. And I was having to now localize. And with that localization came the thought of having to buy a house. I had all this money in the bank that I'd saved over the years being an expat. And now sort of taking that money out of the bank and putting it into a house kind of 
you know, yes, I had a bit of stuff going on at work, which was which was quite stressful. I was involved in a very big conference, um, and and that was very stressful. Um, you know, and so there were there were a number of things I think that was going on in my life. You know, I I, I had my foot on the accelerator. I didn't I couldn't spell the word recovery. I didn't know the importance of recovery and just taking a bit of care for yourself. And so, you know, in many ways, I think it, it probably was the kind of conference and the stress around that that was the last straw to break the camel's back. Uh, but, you know, this had been building, and, and, and I just wish I had known some of the symptoms beforehand. Um, but, yeah, I think, I, think, I think that, you know, in, in retrospect and reflection, uh, there clearly were some symptoms and there was clearly stuff going on in my life that was all coming together at the same time. And, uh, yeah, and eventually I, I had my crucible moment in life. And, and so it, it clearly wasn't just about one thing or the other. It wasn't um, a high-pressure job that did it or it wasn't things going on in your personal life. It was the two combined and sometimes perhaps we miss that, that, that line. Absolutely, Andy. You know, they often say, and look, I think, you know, I think there are some of us out there that are more susceptible to anxiety, fuel, depression or depression than others. And, and, you know, the research tells us that, you know, there are three factors that you need to bear in mind. The one is, you know, you just might be like that. It's just kind of in your genes. And when I think of my mother and I reflect on my mum, I think she was a very anxious person. And so the, I think there is something in my genes. I think the second thing they talk about is, you know, the second factor that makes you susceptible is some sort of tra trauma as a child, you know, in particular, your abuse as a child. And then the third thing they say is in adult life, you know, if a lot of, excuse my French, but a lot of crap is thrown at you at the same time, that can make you susceptible. So imagine going through a divorce, changing a job, moving house, uh, I mean, losing a loved one. Imagine all of that happening at you at the same time, you know, you can probably handle one of those events, but if it all happens at the same time, that can that can lead to you being more susceptible. And, and, and you've listed out those those three influencing factors, um, but they don't all necessarily tie together. So you could have nothing in your genes, no childhood trauma, but you still have everything thrown at you at the same time. You could still end up in the same Correct, place. correct. And, and would it be f uh, fair to assume that, before this happened, you wouldn't necessarily have looked at yourself and said, I'm at risk of, of suffering from... Uh, Never, Andy. Never, ever. I mean, you know, I mean, Perry kind of has seen me and knows me and you kind of... I mean, you know, somebody with... There's a lovely saying, the brighter the light, the darker the shadow. Mm. And I can tell you, I think that was very much me, you know, bright, bright light, but wow, um, there's a dark shadow. I think that's a really important point there because it's very easy for people to listen to this and think, well, that's, all, that, that's affected him, but I'm strong. Uh, and I think that's something I want to discourage, the way of thinking I want to discourage from the very beginning. This might not feel relevant as an episode to you right now, but listen, because you never quite know. Uh, Perry, let's, let's uh, sort of turn to you. Can you tell us a little bit more about what happened uh, around the time of the crash and, and how did it lead to you sort of taking a leading role in talking about this topic of mental health in the workplace? So thank you, Andy, for inviting me. I've been nodding along and, and laughing whilst Jeff was um, talking because so many parallels, so many things 
resonates. I um, coming into two thousand and eight, I had lots of things going on at once. So I had been a partner in a firm that got into some difficulties and then merged into another firm. Had coped all through that. Um, my wife was very poorly and rushed into hospital. My dad was poorly. And then things just started to get on top of me at work. Um, And then the financial crisis hit, things got tougher. And it probably took about 18 months of increasing anxiety until, um, you know, I hit what what Jeff has called anxiety-fueled depression, where I went from a heightened level of anxiety and not being able to sleep or operate properly into a place where I just didn't want to do anything in a chair, didn't want to get up, you know, it it, it just went from absolutely full on to I don't care about any of this anymore. Um, and, and, And I think the other the other thing which is interesting is, you know, when I started to play this back, at work and my wife was calling the office to say you know Perry's off has been diagnosed with severe depression complete disbelief basically of all the partners people would have expected to hit depression you know I was always the 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 laughing one the joking one the one you know um keep keeping mood high And, and I think there's absolutely a connection between the two I really do believe there's a connection between the two I think um, I have had um, three periods of heightened anxiety, um, stroke, depression. What's really interesting is as each period of heightened anxiety goes on, I get better at stopping before I slip into the depression. Um, and, and, And what that means is I can bounce much, much quicker. Um, I'm afraid I am what I would call a bit of a reformed smoker in this area because, you know, prior to 2008, I was kind of pressure, what pressure, you know, depression, fed up, get over yourselves, Um, there's no such thing, so that's made me very passionate and you you were you were saying just now, if you don't think this will happen to you, my experience is um, the less likely you think it's happened to you, the more likely it is to come because, you know, the, the um, there's absolutely a connection there. I, I think in terms of when did I become passionate about speaking out, it, it wasn't until um, 2012 where we had a sharing site, kind of like a... Uh, company Facebook and, um, and we were going into Mental Health Awareness Week and they wanted to do a group on where is your head at and somebody who I really liked nudged me two or three times and said come on you've got a great story to share here and the first uh, two times I said no I don't, I don't want to do it it's very personal I don't want to put myself out there and then they said what have you got to lose and I realised I actually had nothing to lose but loads to give so um we, we had, as I say, this kind of internal uh, community network. You post um, stories, whatever you want to post on there. And, and, and I 
posted an honest story about what had happened to me in 2008. And up until that point, the highest number of views on that site was, was just over 600. Um, I posted my story by the end of day one. It had had 2,200 views and by the end of the week, nearly 5,000. Um, and, and, and I just, I, I was blown away by the interest. And, it, and if I'm really kind of um, honest about it and surprised, just the impact it had, the positive impact it had. It's interesting. I think it's common in both of your journeys that you've been passionate about speaking up about these mental health issues uh, because one of the biggest challenges, particularly when you get to leadership level, is, is the tendency for people to, to look strong to the outside uh, and to, to hide this stuff, even when they are aware that it's it's coming up on them, because it's clear from both of your experiences that you weren't necessarily aware uh, of what was what was happening to you. Um, and, and the whole purpose behind the, the book that I've written, Just Ask, is to encourage people to speak up and, and be vulnerable. Um, your your uh, experience, Perry, of of being sort of staggered by the amount of people that engaged. Um, with that that share of yours, I think speaks volumes um, of understanding that we're not alone. And I think there's so many people that go through this experience thinking, um, I'm the only person and if I speak out, it's going to count against me. So what can we do as organisations uh, or what can organisations do to try and change that culture, encourage a culture of vulnerability and transparency to ensure that their leaders and, and their staff at all levels um, are better able to manage their mental well-being and, and to make it safe to say, well, I'm not okay. I think there that there is all sorts you can d d do, Andy, and I think there is a an increasing um, level of uh, acceptance that it's just part of the human condition that we have um, me mental health in the same way that we have physical health, and they're both a, they're both a continuum. And just because you're not feeling you've got real problems at the moment you can do more work on your mental health to improve your performance. And that's the way I've managed to get traction with some of the people who might have had the mindset that I had before, that just because you're not really struggling doesn't mean you, should be doing, you shouldn't be doing things to improve your mental health. My, my, my experience is that the more leaders can do and the more open leaders can be, um, that is is really really powerful, and, and just to give a a very small example of that, um, you know, we we have been as as a business, we found that we can run our whole business online, right, working from home, and our chief exec has been doing a weekly video on a Friday between five and fifteen minutes from his spare room. And, and, and our people seeing him in that vulnerable position has just had a tremendous impact on their respect for him as a leader and the impact that he can have. Yeah, bringing that, that humanity 
um, you know, in front of a job title, I think can make an absolutely huge difference to the way people just just engage with you. You know, I've interviewed a number of people who have had really strong messages and difficult messages to share with their teams. And it's their vulnerability, their humanity that's helped them to engage. Um, So I think that's a really key point. How does that fit with what we're doing at the moment, Jeff? Um, When you look at corporate culture at the moment, when we, we, I interviewed you previously for the book, and one of the things that, that, that stuck out for me, and, and Perry's just reinforced that, um, was the, the message of um, health and safety. You, you talked about, you know, people invest in health and safety. They'll, they'll look at physical safety and physical health, but not necessarily mental health and mental safety. Um, and it was interesting to hear sort of Perry say something very similar um, just now. Who who do you see who's doing this well at the moment? Which organisations are taking a lead on this and how? Um, and, and where are the rest? I'm not going to ask you to name and shame, um, but, but what are the challenges you most commonly see? Look, I think that, um, you know, I think we see, we're beginning to see a bit of a, um, you know, an evolution of organisations looking to, Let's say that the ultimate is that into the future, every organization, part of the employee value proposition would be come and work for Grant Thornton. You know why? Because we'll enhance your life. And I would say that there are still numerous organizations all across the world where people's lives are being diminished by going to work. And, you know, Andy, if you don't believe me, go and read Jeffrey Pfeffer's book, Professor Pfeffer from Stanford University, called Dying for the Paycheck. Mm. I mean, he has produced all the longitudinal research which shows that the impact that the workplace is having on diminishing people's lives rather than enhancing them. And I think that there's, a, I think there's an evolution around this, and there are some organizations out there who I think have done a fantastic job in beginning to just address the stigma of mental ill health so that, as you say, people can have the conversation. And the culture is being shifted by what Andy said, I mean, what Perry said, the leadership piece. Uh, I think there's also a piece around training, training, training and raising the levels of awareness for everybody uh, I think there's also something around, imagine promoting people in your organization who'd suffered from depression and anxiety before. Uh, as part of your development system, you actually reckon and you don't hold that against somebody and they get promoted and they continue to do well in the firm. And so I think that there is, you know, some organizations out there doing a great job with that. Then you've got, I think, we move to the next level where where organizations are beginning to think about, you know, it's not just mental health, it's actually the overall health of our people. Uh, And I think you've heard me say before that that probably the most important driver of individual team and organizational performance is the energy of people. You know, think about, I don't know, I'm not a Liverpool football supporter, okay? I'm an Arsenal (laughs) supporter. But I can tell you, I don't know where this bloody Liverpool club has come from um, in the last two years, but I I do know what's happened. 
is that there was this guy parachuted in, and his name is Klopp, and he brings unbelievable energy and passion to that club. And just look what's happened. And so if we say that we get our energy from our health, our physical health, our emotional health, our mental health, having a sense of purpose and meaning in our life, then the question becomes in an organization is, okay, so health is actually a key driver of performance. Why don't we elevate that to it being a strategic priority? Because I can tell you every other strategic priority in the organization is around, is around enhancing the performance of that organization. And so why wouldn't you have health there? And we then begin to, and so I think that's the next layer is where executive teams have actually made this decision. You know what? We are going to invest in enhancing the health of our people. And we're also going to make sure that our people feel somewhat accountable to look after their health because we're going to have development plans which are going to drive, which are going to encourage people to look after their health. Uh, and, then, and then we begin to invest the resources and we begin to execute it like any other strategic priority, which, by the way, and Perry will know this, is it's going to require a lot of change. And so there will be a major change program that will be put behind it versus a well-being week once a week where we tick the box or we've got a few bananas next to the till in the canteen and we've got nuts in meeting rooms and we say we care for our people. You know, health is important. And so I think, I think, you know, I don't want to name and shame, but I think there are, we are beginning to see some organizations now, particularly here in the UK. I mean, the other parts of the world where, you know, we're far, far away from this, um, but where, where they are elevating, you know, the health of their people to being a strategic priority and beginning to think, what does that mean? What would that look like? How would we go about doing that? I think you make a, 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 a great point, and, and I do believe you because I've been in that position. You know, I've been in a job, I was in a job for two years that I hated, and you saw the impact on me. You know, it cost me a relationship. I was wow. overweight. Um, I was white as a sheet, you know, and I've got decent color to my, my skin. Um, and I look at photos of me just before I left that job and then wow. a few months later, and it's two different people. Uh, and so I get that. And, and I think that, you know, one of the key things that, that you said there was about energy fueling businesses. You know, if you think of, um, if you think of your business as a high performance car, you've got to put the right fuel in it and that fuel is your people and and you want them performing at optimum level and that's their their, their energy but, levels there but you know any but Andy on that you know I, I I mean I don't like this saying people are our most important asset I've tried to nuance that a little to say the energy of our people mm -hmm. or the health of our people is our most important asset because we can all just say people but you know what the energy the health of our people wow, that's an important asset. Because when they're healthy and when they're energized, they will perform. And, and it's their passion and enthusiasm yeah, for the yeah, job as well. Yeah. And that all leads to positive mental health. Absolutely. We hope that you're taking away some valuable lessons from this edition of the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you would like support in developing, nurturing, and leveraging strong relationships to support you in your role, please visit andylapata.com forward slash mentoring. So, so on, on the topic of people, this is the, the Connected Leadership podcast, and that connected element is about professional relationships. And, and, and the focus is very much about the role of professional relationships in, in supporting people in, in, in executive positions. So 
where I really want to go now is have a look at what's the role other people play in helping each other in supporting that them on that journey and managing mental health. Were there people who could have picked up signs um, before you each hit that crash um, and, and things came down upon you? Were there people that could have picked up the warning signs? If so, how could they? If not, did people help you afterwards and in which way, how? And and what would you counsel people to do otherwise? So, so Perry, can I turn to you first on that? Yeah, I, I, I think it's really interesting, Andy, this one, because we, we, we spend a lot of time and money training uh, mental health first aiders and we spend a lot of time and money communicating the signs to look for. And for some people, that might be um, helpful. For me, you'll never know with me. Um, you know, I've, I've been off three times and I um, am a tremendous actor with it. So it would be possible for me to, I'm in town now, but when I was out of town, it would have been possible for me to drive to the office in tears, do a full day as the old Perry, get back in the car, drive home in tears um so, so i do think there are things you can do but 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 people are very good at, at hiding how they're actually feeling from people i think in terms of what you can do when you find out again i think that, that probably varies from person to person the most important thing that ever happened to me was a couple of days after my wife had called in and said perry's what won't be at work one of the senior partners, the COO, called me and said, Perry, you should just know that you're one of four partners out of 200 we've got off at the moment. 50% of my problems disappeared at that point because he normalized it for me. And I, I wasn't the only person. And I, and I think the other thing organizations can do is educate and talk to people. I, I remember... The, the, the last time I was off, I called one of my friends and other partner in the firm to catch up. And his first words were, oh, you sound OK. You can talk. I was like, yeah, yeah I can I can continue to talk. <laughs> that's, that's not a function that I lose when I'm in a bad place. So, you know, people just understanding, I think, and, and learning. And for me, anyway, treating me like normal when I'm in a bad place is really, really helpful to me, not avoiding me. And I suppose, you know, Andy, the ultimate in what Perry is saying is, you know, I mean, part of why, and I'm, I, you know, Perry can correct me on this, but, but part of why he is so, was so good at hiding this was because of the stigma that is related to this, right? Yep. And so imagine if we can create workplaces where there is no stigma. Uh, then people, you know, we often say, bring your whole self to work until you do. Until you do. And imagine if we could create workplaces through some of the stuff that Perry has just described. Well, you know what? I actually can bring my whole self to work. And you actually might notice me, you know, not behaving like I normally do. And we can have a conversation around that. You know, for me, probably the most, you know, and I'm with, I'm, I'm, I'm with Perry in, in everything that he has said there. Um, but for me, I can tell you, um, 
I was very much liberated by the doctor's diagnosis. You know, when I went to the doctor and he diagnosed me with anxiety, fuel, depression, I was liberated. And, and I made a decision not to be burdened by the stigma. So I'm not as good as Perry at hiding it. People can see it in my eyes. They can see that my behavior, I'm just not very good at it. And so I made a decision that I would just be open. I've been to a doctor and this is what he said is wrong with me. If he had told me I got Bill Hosier, I would have told people that. And that was my ability to talk was, was just unbelievably powerful because what I got in return from my close friends, from my boss at the time, was an outpouring of love and just feeling loved. You know, Andy, wow, in my darkest moments, knowing that I had at the time, I had a 10-year-old who loved me. I had a 13-year-old who loved me. In fact, I had a boss who was so concerned about me. He used to pop around and see how I was doing and show that empathy and that compassion. You know, that's what kept me going. That's what kept me alive in my darkest moments. I, I think the, there's an em, enormous power in allowing other people to help us that we don't, we don't know about until we truly experience it. But, but if you... If you think back to when you've helped someone that you care about um, and and the the, the positive feelings you get from doing that, um, one of the things I'm often sharing is we don't ask for help because we don't want to be a burden to other people. And yet we get pleasure from helping others. So when we don't ask for help, we're actually denying people the pleasure of providing that help as long as the relationship is strong enough in the first place. Um, So it's understanding those things that are stopping us, being a burden, looking vulnerable and weak. There there is power in being vulnerable. Charles Uh, Mackesy says, um, I don't know if you've seen this quote. It's a lovely quote from Charles Mackesy. And he says, asking for help is not giving up. It's refusing to give up. Yeah. Yeah. And it's showing you want to address it, showing you want to do something. It's taking control of something that's in control of you. We've been talking about how organizations can help and support and those relationships internally. Um, But Perry, you said that you're very good at hiding it. Is that... Is that hiding it in a professional sense, or do you hide what's happening from your friends and family as well? Or is, I mean, maybe you were at the beginning and that shifted, I don't know. That, that's a really complex question, Andy, I think, for me, because I hide it from certain people. I, I, will, always hide it, I will always hide it in a work um, context until I can't, if that makes sense. Um, I will never hide it in my home. Um, whether I hide it with friends and family honestly depends on whether I can be bothered to talk about it, if that makes sense. Because if, if I'm, if I'm not in a great place and I don't hide it with friends and family, everybody wants to help and everybody wants to know about it. And I I might not be bothered. I, I might be in a point where I can't be bothered to talk about it. So it's just easier to hide it. If that makes sense, that sounds really strange I think just going back to this helping point you know I've always been astonished and I shouldn't be by the third time every time I've been off and come back my clients have always said um, 
but we, we, we want you back, Perry, as soon as you're well enough. And, and, and I always think that, you know, once, once they've lost you for a bit, they, they, they might be thinking, oh, I want someone who's a bit more stable, a bit more robust, who's not going to disappear. But they never do. Yeah, you know what, Perry, it's so interesting. Because you know what I say to that? Every single time you've been through it, you've become a better human being. You've become, a, you've become more compassionate. You've become a better listener. You've overcome a significant, significant challenge in your life, I don't know, three times. You know, you, you, I just think you, 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 you're more alert of this stuff. You're more in tune with it, both for yourself and for, in, with other people. Um, you have this degree of empathy. that, that and, and I'm talking really from my own experience, but I can tell you, I think I'm just a better human being. Yeah. Um, but, you know, interesting on that question, Andy, I mean, the other, the other thing is, for me, I've also, I mean, it's so, it's amazing, Perry, the parallels. 2008, you know, the first time I really started talking about this publicly was 2012 because I lost a very good friend to suicide. That was my catalyst to go out and start talking about this uh, publicly. But, you know, so, so lots of parallels. So 2008, 2010. Um, and you know what? The second time, it was a bit more difficult to talk about it. And if there was a third time, probably a bit more difficult. And you know why? Because I felt I didn't want to be a burden on other people again. Um, you know, and so the first time, wow, you know, it was like you've seen the movie for the first time and kind of you've got all this love and compassion and everything around you, you know. And then the second time, gee, do I want to put my family through all of that again and my friends? The third time, oh, so... Interest, that, that was, that's my reflection on it, that, that made it a little bit more difficult uh, the second and third time. I, I, I think that one key, key point here is that when we're talking about sharing what you're going through and letting people know, that doesn't mean you have to set everyone in your life down and say, let me tell you what I've just gone through. Um, and, you know, for Perry, it may well be close family and selected friends. For others, yeah. it may be a confidant or a mentor at work. Yeah. But it's about having people you know you can trust who will both um, uh, keep your secrets secure and not judge you um, are both really important and be there for you. And also to a degree not to try and solve it. That's not what you're always looking for, but just to listen uh, and just to allow you to, to express what you're going through. Uh, and maybe that, that circle of people does occasionally shift so that you're not overburdening the same people. Yeah. Um, the other element is that there is external support. Uh, and I know that you're both involved in organisations that talk about these challenges uh, and support people going through them. So what type of options are there outside personal networks that, are, that can provide support for people and advice for people who are going through these challenges. Jeff, do you want to take that first? Yeah, look, I think the most obvious ones are, um, you know, organisations like the Samaritans. Um, you know, uh, there's a wonderful organisation called Shout, uh, which is doing some amazing work as well. Um, you know, there are, you know, there are various helplines to, to organisations like Calm, Papyrus, um, you know, so so there 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 are numerous um, organisations out there that people can, you know, even even 
you know, even a counsellor, um, you know, uh, is out there uh, and you've probably been through it and part of your recovery is engaging with some kind of counselling service um, or a cognitive behavioural therapist that you might have worked with. You know, so you've got the counselling services, you've got cognitive behavioural therapists, you've got these these charitable type organisations like the Samaritans, Calm, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, the unfortunate thing is that... Um, you know, we don't know about them enough. You know, they're not part of, uh, you know, part of our upbringing and our education. Uh, there's very little that we learn about how to look after our total well-being. We learn how to look after our physical health, but we, we never get taught how to look after our emotional health, our mental health, having that sense of purpose in our lives and what support resources are out there to draw on. It, it's just not part of the part of our, our education and I would love to see more of that so that people are aware of those things. You know, the only time I ever became aware of mind, for example, was, was when this happened to me. Yeah, I, th I think that there's still a stigma about going to a psychiatrist, for example, in this country. You know, in, in the US, there seems to be no stigma mm. at all. Mm. In the UK, I think we're on the journey. It's becoming more accepted, more understood. Um, I interviewed someone from Russia for the book, and they said people would think there's something really wrong with you. Mm. So I, I, culturally, that shifts mm. wherever you are. Perry, is there anything that you want to add in terms of external support? I think that the, the, um, the one that people always shy away from and I'm not sure that they should, is going to their GP. Um, and and that then when you go to the GP, maybe go armed with a bit of knowledge around cognitive behaviour therapy and, and, and counselling because, you know, the, the, um, the, the wait lists on the NHS are very, very long. Um, but this stuff is not tremendously expensive if you're prepared to pay for your own counselling or CBT or whatever else it is. And you, and you can also supplement it with reading and books and a whole load of online exercising or exercises around self-compassion. And, and, and there is so much out there now on the internet. So guided by a GP or somebody who knows a little bit about it, um, that, that there's so much you can find and do either for free or at much lower cost than you might expect. Great thing. And I think I should just sort of say at this stage that if you're listening and you do feel that uh, some of this resonates with you and how you're feeling, then please do take some action. And if that means reaching out to your GP as a first point, that sounds like a very sensible uh, first port of call. Um, I think it's been a fascinating conversation, as I knew it would be. Just to, to finish off, it would be great to get from each of you um, one thing, single most important thing that you've learned from your journey um, that you would want to share with people listening to this. So, Perry, if I can start with you, what's the, the one thing you would, you've taken away that's changed how you've acted and you'd want other people to learn from? Just keep going, don't beat yourself up, and things will get better. And I, th I think uh, I, there's such a silver lining to my challenges. I've got a job I prefer now. Um, I've got a much better understanding of how minds work. And I've taken up more hobbies to get some balance into my life. 
So, Jeff, how about for you? Oh, thanks, and uh, thank you, Andy. And Perry's just <laughs> stolen some of mine. So, but no, let me. Uh, I, I think the biggest lesson for me is that the most important priority in my life is my health. It's the number one priority in my life. I cannot pour from an empty glass. I cannot give energy to people if I'm not energetic. And so it has been the biggest learning for me is to prioritize my health, looking after my physical health, my emotional health, my mental health, and having that sense of purpose and meaning in my life. And every single day, every day, just small practical things to enhance all those aspects of my, my health. And, and Perry said it earlier, it's all about self-compassion, learning to be self-compassionate rather than feel guilty when I'm compassionate to myself. I think that's a great, a great note to end on. Um, before we started uh, recording, uh, I mentioned to the two of you that I haven't been outside for two days. I've just been so snowed under and, uh, and you rightly picked me up on it. Um, and and I, one of the things I'm going to do almost straight after finishing this is go for a walk down to the river uh, and get some fresh air and be compassionate to myself. And Mm -hmm. over the course of this podcast series, we're talking about a lot of uh, strategic ways in which professional uh, relationships can help uh, successful leaders, but none of them work if you're not going to look after yourself and make sure that your health is right in the first place. So um, Perry and Jeff, thank you very much. I'm sure that's been really useful discussion uh, for people listening. And I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much again to Jeff and Perry. A couple of weeks ago was Mental Health Awareness Week, which just shows how this is still such an important topic. Uh, And I felt it was one I really wanted to revisit, particularly given that timing. If you do have any challenges of the types that uh, Jeff and Perry were talking about, please do reach out uh, for the support to your network to your doctor and to professionals around you. Uh, We've been working with My Black Dog and supporting them, who are an excellent UK charity, uh, helping people who need someone to talk to, who really understands the pressures and the issues because they've been through it themselves. Uh, So that's myblackdog.co if you're in the UK. If you have found this useful, if you have found it powerful, please do share it, help other people access this type of support and of course spread the word about the Connected Leadership Podcast and I will see you again very soon. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership tips.